You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview, the Irish Times podcast, bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs. I'm Patrick Smith. On our podcast this week, Lara Marlowe on the French right's Thatcherite candidate for the presidency, François Fillon. Can he take on and beat the irrepressible Marine Le Pen next year? And Dennis Staunton in Tel Aviv on how Israel has reacted to Donald Trump's victory. A staunch supporter of Israel who says he may appoint a son-in-law, Yared Kushner, as an envoy to the region. Is this the kiss of death to any hope of dialogue with the Palestinians? And I talked to Dubliner Lynn Geldof, who spent some years in Cuba, about her recollections of Fidel Castro and her sense of the Cuba that he shaped. Are we right to be sending effusive messages of condolence? First to Paris and Lara Marlowe. At the weekend, the second round of the primaries to select the centre and rights candidate for the presidency next year produced a clear victory for the late entrant to the race, François Fillon. He defeated centrist Alain Juppé, ensuring that the campaign in the second round of the presidency will almost certainly pitch France's traditional conservatives against the far-right Marine Le Pen of the National Front. The critical question the French are asking themselves is what will left-wing voters do? Sit on their hands and let her win? But Lara, first... Who is Fillon, and what does he stand for? Uh, he is a career politician. Uh, he was the youngest deputy in the National Assembly when he was elected at the age of 27. He's from uh, uh, Sartre, in the, the Sartre uh, department in western France, where Le Mans is. In fact, he's an amateur race car driver. Uh, he married a, a Welsh woman, Penelope Clark, when he was 27, 28. They have five children. He's very much a, a, a traditional provincial gentleman, I, I, I suppose you would call him. They live in a manor house, and uh, he, he was uh, earlier loyal to Philippe Seguin, who was what they called a social goalist, and this was a right-wing values, but with an eye to social policies that would be kind to the poor. But he certainly appears to have abandoned that in his program for the presidential election race. He was for five years uh, prime minister to Nicolas Sarkozy when he had a very hard time under Sarkozy. Sarkozy treated him quite rudely, as he treats almost everyone. And uh, he, in fact, he referred to him as, as my collaborator, which was a sort of rude way of saying uh, Fillon doesn't count for much. And Sarkozy uh, took all the glory and credit for everything that went right, and Fillon took all the blame for everything that went wrong. And then after Sarkozy's term ended in 2012, Fillon was, was engaged in a really ugly battle for control of the party, which was called the UMP then, which has since become Les Républicains. And uh, he lost that battle to Jean-François Copé. And so his, his victory in the primary by a two-thirds majority um, of the 4.3 million people who voted was really considered miraculous. Uh, it, it was really amazing. And what happened was that Fillon, way back in 2013, started... Uh, drawing up his program. He studied these questions very much in depth. He wrote a book called Faire to Do, uh, and he was seen to have had by far the most serious program to really have uh, thought long and hard about what was wrong with France and how to set it right. He admires Margaret Thatcher very much. In fact, uh, one of his favorite uh, campaign quotes uh, is that the best social protection is employment comes uh, straight out of Margaret Thatcher. Uh, and his his victory against Sarkozy in the first round was very sweet then, in, in that he, 
he trounced his old uh, his old boss. Um, he did. He's very much an old-fashioned rural conservative from from what has been called la France profonde, socially conservative on issues like abortion and gay marriage, and he's he's quite willing to play the anti-immigrant card. Yes, on his conserv- social conservatism, he was attacked between the first round and the second round by Alain Juppé, um, saying that he would it endangered women's abortion rights in France and, and so on. And, and Ju- um, sorry, Fillon became very angry, and he said, "Look, this is totally unfair." He had said once in public that his personal personal conscience would not uh, allow him to approve of an abortion, that he was personally against it. But he said very, very clearly, I will not try to change the legislation. I will not endanger women's rights to abortion. Uh, on the same, the same uh, more or less with gay marriage, in 2013, as you recall, there were huge demonstrations of basically the Catholic right. And they have, uh, they supported Fillon totally in his campaign, and, and he owes his victory in part, at least, to, the, to them. But he says that you, he will not reverse same-sex marriage because you can't unmarry people who are already married. He, however, he is questioning the adoption rights and the um, procreation through medically-assisted means uh, of uh, homosexual couples. So he's still hard on that. Um, you asked about his economic policies, I well, believe. His, his immigration... Um, oh, his immigration st- policies, yes. Uh, he is trying... That is one area where he and Marine Le Pen will be competing. Uh, he has also written a book called Vanquishing Islamism, where he uh, is very hard on what he calls Islamist totalitarianism. So he is striking a, a very tough pose on, on Muslims and Islam. Uh, but Marine Le Pen is accusing him of being soft on, on Islam. Uh, he also uh, would limit very severely the number of immigrants coming into France. So uh, that, that's the main sort of ground of, of competition between Le Pen and Fillon. They are totally opposed on economic policy. Uh, she's protectionist. She says she wants to return to the franc or get out of the euro. She wants to leave the European Union. Uh, she says she'll put those things up to those questions up to a referendum. Fillon is a convinced European. He's a free marketeer, and he believes that France should embrace globalization and be more competitive. So they're com- on completely different wavelengths. And in- indeed, his demand, Thatcherite demand, to roll back the state, to rewrite labour rights and reduce the public service by 500,000 is potentially likely to swing many left-wing voters to p- support Le Pen more statist, populist position. Certainly, Le Pen's uh, social policies and her policy on, for example, the civil servant service would be closer to traditional left-wing voters. There have already been a huge number of left-wing voters have gone to the Front National. These are the working-class voters, the poor voters, and that is her electorate. And In fact, she said since uh, Fillon's victory that they just do not have the same electorate. But Fillon must, if he's going to be elected France, he must appeal uh, to the poorer working classes. And uh, he's already started last night. He was on television. He was challenged about his health policies. He wants 
uh, a degree of privatization of the, the French medical service, and he says that only sort of emergency care and really serious illnesses ought to be reimbursed, and he wants people to have private insurance to make up for what Social Security won't pay for. And because he's being attacked on this already, he said, he said last night that he commits himself, so I, I, I take the commitment to make sure that people who must be protected, those of limited means, will not be less reimbursed. And now it's not clear how he's going to balance that. Is he going to do it through Social Security or through the Mutuelle, which is the, the sort of semi-private insurance companies? It's not clear how he's going to achieve that, but he realizes that there's a problem there and that poor people, disadvantaged people, are not going to vote for him unless he modifies his policies somewhat. It sounds very like Margaret Thatcher's old slogan of the National Health Service being safe in our our hands he he is also strangely uh, for a european politician uh, very pro putin and and um, his election would mean with trump's election in the white house a block of western attitude of of western countries in favor of of a very substantial change in in approach to to russia well, that's right, presuming that he and Trump uh, remain on friendly terms. Uh, but it must be said that Marine Le Pen is also very close to Putin. Uh, she's spoken in the Duma. She has taken bank loans from Russian banks when French banks refused to finance her party. So whether Le Pen or Fillon, assuming that they're the finalists in, in the runoff next May, whichever of them wins, Putin will have a friend in the Elysee. Uh, and you're right, Patty, it means that three out of five members of the Security Council will be in that sort of Putin-Russia block. Zhirpi's defeat at the weekend deprives the centre of its main candidate, but uh, there has been another surprise candidate, Emmanuel Macron. Is he likely to do well? Emmanuel Macron, uh, in opinion polls, is scoring higher than either President François Hollande or Prime Minister Manuel Valls, one of whom is likely to be his rival. He's sort of coming in third. Um, he's kind of, he's neither a fish nor fowl. He's not, he's not a socialist. He's not uh, Les Républicains. Um, people aren't really sure what he represents. He worked for the Banque Rothschild for, for a long time, and that certainly hurts him with the popular classes. I mean, there was a famous incident where he went to a factory that was being shut down, and he, he said, well, what would happen to some of these? Some of these people can't even read and write, and that went down very, very badly, because there aren't real illiterate people in France. So I mean, he is kind of seen as, as upper class, but he's young. He's only 38 years old. He's got a kind of energy and enthusiasm that one only has at, at that age. And he has a lot of ideas, and he's, he's, he's quite popular. Yes, he could, he could be the third man in this election, and as nothing this year in any of the, the elections has gone as it was expected to, uh, anything could happen in France as well. It, it's not impossible that Macron could, could uh, beat either Le Pen or Fillon to the runoff. At the moment, it doesn't look likely, uh, but watch the space. Thank you very much, Lara. You're listening to the Irish Times. Now to Tel Aviv, where our London editor, Dennis Staunton, has been observing reaction to Donald Trump's election. The next few weeks present a unique window of opportunity for Israel, says Naftali Bennett, the far-right minister and leader of a settlers' party. For Israelis, the US election is always nearly as important as their own. In Trump, they have someone who has indicated strong support for the country. In a campaign document, he promised to move the US embassy to Jerusalem. 
He said that Israel's West Bank settlements are not an obstacle to peace, and he repeatedly condemned the Iranian nuclear agreement that Israel has so vociferously opposed. I presume there was rejoicing in the streets. Well, there was rejoicing certainly in Jerusalem, in uh, in Benjamin Netanyahu's government. And Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, you really couldn't wait to congratulate Donald Trump. Partly this is because Netanyahu and uh, Barack Obama had such a poor relationship. You mentioned the uh, Iran nuclear deal, and uh, Netanyahu was felt very, very miffed that uh, Israel was effectively cut out of that, and Obama went ahead with this deal against the wishes, the expressed wishes of the Israeli prime minister. And uh, and in general, uh, their, their relationship had been very poor, so that almost anybody was going to be better from Netanyahu's point of view uh, than Barack Obama. A lot of people on the right in Israel were encouraged by some of the remarks that Donald Trump made during the campaign. Although, having said that, he did shift a little bit during the campaign uh, here and there. At one stage, he said he wanted to be a neutral broker between the Israelis and the Palestinians. Then later, he uh, took a, a tougher line in support of Israel. Likewise, he uh, had uh, you know, he seemed to have shifted a little bit on the issue of the uh, of moving the embassy to Jerusalem. It's true that practically every, uh, or at least a number of uh, U.S. presidents, including Bill Clinton and George W. Bush, have promised to move the uh, embassy from uh, uh, from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. But in each case, they've backtracked on it. And there is an actual act of Congress which demands that the, um, the embassy ought to be moved. But the president can waive this every six months, and basically the president's ever since uh, Bill Clinton in 1995, have been waiving uh, this because they say that it will actually endanger national security because it's likely to be a bit of a powder keg. So the initial reaction, as I say, from Netanyahu and from the right in particular, has been, uh, you know, uh, has been that this is a great opportunity. Uh, Trump is pretty popular in Israel, although most of the polls in advance of the elections did suggest that more Israelis, if they had had a vote, would have voted for Hillary Clinton. But there are a few complications along the way uh, in the future, perhaps for Netanyahu, and some reasons why he may not uh, be so happy with Trump as time goes on. Now, one of these is, as I mentioned, that there's been some suggestion that uh, that Trump is backsliding away from some of his commitments, notably to tear up the Iran nuclear deal, because I think once he um, met President Obama and once he's started to understand a little bit more about what's involved, he started to realize that actually this is not going to be very easy to do and that actually he could end up without uh, an agreement with uh, Iran, but in fact without the sanctions against Iran working. So he'd have potentially the worst of both worlds. So there's some sign of a retreat from that also on the issue of the uh, of the embassy. But as you mentioned in your introduction, a number of people in Netanyahu's coalition to the right of Netanyahu have been seizing on the opportunity of Trump to say, well, let's just, uh, as Naftali Bennett said, let's just... Uh, forget about the Palestinian state. This is going to be the death knell for a two-state solution. Others have said this is a great opportunity to expand settlement building. And what Netanyahu has been doing over the years, uh, and one of the reasons why he's been so successful here, is that he's been playing a kind of a two-level game. So he's playing uh, his international partners off against domestic public opinion and vice versa. 
And so in some ways, while uh, you know, he would complain uh, about having to deal with uh, a president like President Obama, the fact that uh, there was some resistance coming from uh, international partners in Washington uh, was a, an excuse for him, for Netanyahu, not to become more radical and not to adopt some of the more radical positions of some of his right-wing colleagues, because he knows that this could be uh, a, you know, a, a recipe for an enormous amount of trouble. Trump has also announced that he is likely to appoint his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, as an envoy to the Middle East. Is, is uh, Kushner known at all, and, and how do people view that? He's not really known uh, at all, and insofar as there has been official uh, reaction to that, uh, they've said, "Oh, it's uh, it's absolutely fine. It's you know we're all in favour of uh, of any effort. It really doesn't matter uh, you know who he is if he's got the president's confidence." In fact, there is no real appetite uh, on the part of the Israeli government for any kind of resumption of the peace process. And once again, one of the uh, uh, one of the stratagems that uh, that Netanyahu has been playing. And he's actually been very open about this. Is that he's, um, you know, uh, he's constantly given the impression to uh, international actors, or sought to give the impression that the Palestinians are the problem. So he keeps uh, going to world capitals and offering to have face-to-face -face talks with Mahmoud Abbas, the Palestinian leader. And then because, uh, you know, the uh, Palestinians will only accept talks on certain conditions, they insist on having some kind of uh, parameters for the talks, uh, Netanyahu can then uh, make them, uh, portray them as being the, uh, the block to any kind of progress. But in fact, there is no real appetite, and I would say that there is no real expectation, uh, despite Donald Trump's suggestion that he'd love to be the guy who makes the deal between uh, uh, Israel and the Palestinians, that, uh, that actually anything like this is likely to happen. Two more issues, by the way, I think, where uh, there could be trouble ahead. One is that uh, the Trump has suggested in the past, uh, just a few months ago, that a number of countries, including Saudi Arabia, Japan, and indeed including Israel, should start to pay for their own defense. And that uh, and it has suggested that Israel would be quite capable of repaying the $3 billion uh, that it receives in military aid every year. Uh, now, President Obama just agreed to a 10-year plan for uh, a total of $38 billion in military aid with, with Israel. Uh, which ought to be locked in. But once again, the idea that this, you know, that the Trump's America first doctrine could in some way come into conflict with uh, America's traditional commitment to, uh, to Israel is something which I think many in, on the official side here in Israel are very alert to. Another issue which has come up uh, is the is the way in which Trump's election appears to have set uh, uh, the government in Israel in some way in conflict with uh, Jewish American opinion. Seventy five percent of Jewish Americans did not vote for uh, Donald Trump, and he performed among Jews in America. He he, he underperformed Mitt Romney in 2012 as well. And many uh, American Jews are extremely alarmed by some of the people that Trump has around him, particularly Steve Bannon of Breitbart, uh, the, uh, the website which has uh, been promoting a kind of white nationalism. And, uh, and so, uh, so I think, once again, that there is some disquiet here that, uh, you know, that you might find that 
the, the sort of block in Congress, as well as the uh, the, the, the majority support uh, among uh, Jewish Americans for Israel, that somehow because Trump is so un- unpredictable and because of some of the uh, extreme ways and uh, or the, the extreme views that uh, some of his supporters are associated with, that somehow that this uh, relatively stable support for Israel could be destabilized. Thank you very much, Dennis. You can subscribe to the full range of Irish Times podcasts on iTunes, SoundCloud and Stitcher. The death on Saturday morning of Fidel Castro marks a global closing of a Cold War chapter. And for Cuba, also a new chapter, although Fidel uh, stepped aside from power a decade ago. Yet his spirit still animates and shapes its politics as it has done since the time he led a revolution against Batista in 1959. Dubliner Lynn Geldof knows Cuba well. She lived there for four years in the mid-80s. She joins me in the studio. Uh, what brought you there and what are your memories of Fidel's Cuba? Well, what brought me there in the first instance was I was interested in experiencing something resembling socialism, but in a warm climate. I was not interested in travelling to the Soviet Union at the time. I, I spoke Spanish so all of this kind of uh, figured in my logic. I had been a, a young teenager under the uh, classroom table at the time of the missile crisis. So it was one of those uh, moments that mark you and it remained in my head. And it seemed at the time as something sort of, um, I think, um, captivating. It captured the imagination of anyone who went through that missile crisis moment. Where were we all, you know, in that at that period? So I went to Cuba, in fact, from Nicaragua, where I had been for a year on Christmas Day in 1985, where I met up with my father, who had flown in from Dublin. And were you disillusioned at all by life under socialism? By the time I was leaving? Yes, I mean, I was completely fed up with bureaucracy and um, inefficiencies and uh, one thing and another of that sort. Um, Of course, I had come to understand the difficulties under which they were trying to operate, but I did feel at the time that there was a certain infantilism going on with the lack of space, I suppose, to speak as freely as uh, people might. That isn't to say that people did not speak freely to you or um, someone else. They did, but um, in a collective sense. So um, the embargo was pretty severe, though I was there, in fact, at the best time for Cuba, up to that point uh, where in those um, years, 85, well, 86, 87, 88, uh, things were moving steadily ahead. And I think it had growth rates that were quite substantial. But saying that, you know, I was getting a bit fed up with all the... And what was your sense of Fidel and his presence, if you like, in the everyday lives of Cubans? Monumental. Um, He was... Uh, greatly admired, I think, in general, by most people. Um, I think 
He had um, a hugely charismatic personality and people would turn up. I went to one or two of the long speeches, long they were. But, um, we're talking about four or five hours. Yeah, the, um, I was there when the bodies came back from Granada, when the Cubans who had been working on the airport there came back, and that was something. Um, it was very moving, if exhausting on the legs to be standing there. But I think, you know, the, this huge charismatic figure had an incredible impact across Latin America, who on the you know all all the peoples along there who were who are laboring under various right wing dictatorships and interference from the U.S. and this gave hope, certainly did. And indeed, an entire generation of yeah. of the Latin American left was very much inspired and and left wing movements very much inspired by him. The intellectuals were behind um, Castro behind Cuba. Um, life became more difficult for the various organizations that brought together the Western Hemisphere, all the Americas, because there were continuing attempts to prevent Cuba from participating. And, uh, you know, finally, um, some people think that Obama went to Cuba specifically because they felt they were being locked out of the conversation in, in Latin America. Uh, because they were no longer welcome at these hemisphere meetings, um, and Cuba was. So I think it was uh, just an attempt to try and not alienate the U.S. further. Yeah, in recent years, the, mm. the, the tide against the embargo was very strong in, in, in Latin America, and even in the exile Cuban community in, in uh, Florida, there was, a, yeah. there was a new mood of, of willingness to engage with Cuba. Oh, completely. I mean, I think most Cubans... Well, um, when I was writing in the 80s, there were really three generations now living in Miami, and the younger generations... Uh, many did not uh, share wh what their elders uh, thought about Cuba and missed and wanted to be part of the Cuban Cuban society, Cuban culture. I mean, I think there is a huge loss of culture when people, when Cubans went to the States and couldn't travel back. That um, affected huge numbers, that loss of... And the, the, so there's a generational shift in terms yeah. of attitudes of, of yes. exiles, but there's also been a, a generational shift in Cuba itself yeah. in attitudes to Fidel. And yeah. in the younger generation would certainly not look on him at the same eyes that perhaps their parents or grandparents did. No, I mean, the revolutionary generation lived a faith, really, in, in Fidel. It was their lives, all of their lives that consumed them. Um, and then as the generations advanced, some of the, the next generation were involved as children in the literacy campaign. Uh, they, as 13, 14-year-olds, went out to the country and were on that campaign, that one-year campaign. And now this newer, these newer generations, well, there, I suppose, their reference is Miami or New York rather than Managua. And Cuba will always appear very different to people from wherever they are approaching it. So if you're coming from Europe or the US, you will see, you will be expecting a developed country. If you're coming from Central America or many areas of the of South America, 
you see a much more advanced society, a much more just society, uh, healthier and um, educationally well, speaking, yeah. more and advanced People society. People need a lot of mm. uh, the education system and the health system yeah. in particular. Uh, these these were on con- from a continental point of view yeah. were were unprecedented really in terms of the, their development of they certainly were and I mean uh, the level of education in the ordinary Cuban they can conduct a conversation with you on European literature you know that you would be astounded at there isn't a Cuban who doesn't know how to make music in some form or other or they are terribly well educated. Now, that said, services are basic and the um, health system has, over these several decades, suffered incredibly from a lack of investment because um, they can't get access to um, equipment, medical supplies, basic aspirin. There is a lot of poverty and difficulty still there. Poverty of a generalised rather than a particular variety. It is still a more equal society than most in Latin America. Now, President Higgins, like Jeremy Corbyn Mm. and Canada's Justin Trudeau, have all been criticised for what might be called over-effusive tributes to Castro, um, perhaps glossing over human rights abuses. Has Michael D overstepped the mark? Um, I wouldn't think so. I think he balanced what he, you know, what he said by um, setting down the fact that in terms of education and health and um, general welfare of people, that that was at the expense of civic and political rights. Cuba invested in um, people before profit, not the other way around. Um, and that is, uh, you know, that that is what causes these um, divergences of, of of thinking. But anyone who, I suppose, has visited it and also visited other areas of the developing world would, should be open enough and willing enough to listen and um, judge, open their, uh, the way they might see the world. How is that world viewed from that other perspective rather than our own comfortable, privileged side of the world. And so the big picture, how will Castro be seen in 20 years' time? In 20 years' time, I think he'll he'll still be hailed as the great uh, hero of independence. He will still be um, among the leading figures of um, Latin American history like Simón Bolívar, José Martí, I think he will hold that. I think criticisms will continue to come, and they're justified. Um, but then, uh, you know, the alibi was always there, the embargo, the big enemy. But it doesn't mean to say that it wasn't also a fact that the embargo caused and um, made, perhaps, the attempt to develop an, uh, a more advanced economically uh, viable society that it prevented that perhaps from occurring and Cuba made an attempt to be as good as it could be but it wasn't exactly how it wished itself to be I think. Or, or he wished it to be. Yeah. Yes. Thanks. Thank you very much Lynn. Thanks to Dennis Staunton, Lara Marlowe, Lynn Geldof and to sound engineer Rob O'Sullivan and our producer Declan Conlon. 
You can find Worldview and other Irish Times podcasts in iTunes, SoundCloud and Stitcher or at www.irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts.